everyone is worried about the fate of the American experiment. Joe Biden is not the defender of American democracy. Joe Biden is the destroyer of American democracy. As we began this election year, we must be clear, democracy is on the ballot. Your freedom is on the ballot. In normal circumstances, I would not do this. Uh, but these are not normal circumstances. I'm watching my country being stolen from me. 2024 threatens to be a year of societal upheavals, constitutional crises, and authoritarian collapse. The signs of the crisis abound, sometimes obvious and sometimes subtle. The obvious signs appear in red and blue on cable news channels and in the headlines of the New York Times or the New York Post. On the blue side, the Democratic Party's lists of danger signs mostly focus on Donald Trump. Vanity Fair argues that Donald Trump's dictator promise is no joke. The New York Times claims that Trump's boldest argument yet is his claim that the president would be immune from prosecution even if he ordered the political assassination of his rivals. Meanwhile, Republicans claim that the Democrats are weaponizing the judiciary and the government and have already overturned the Constitution as they find extra-legal and anti-political ways to take down rivals and domestic threats. Critics of the Democrat on the right and left wonder how a party claiming to defend democracy can cancel presidential primaries and simply insist on renominating the confused geriatric bumbler Joe Biden. On the subtle side, the Obamas released a Netflix original series wherein a coup d'etat not only disrupts the elite protagonist's Wi-Fi, but destabilizes their world generally. Their teeth fall out, flamingos flock to their swimming pool, deer emerge from the woods threateningly, and New York City is subjected to a nuclear attack. Still, the Obamas do offer audiences a kind of redemption, as the film concludes when one of the characters finds an old DVD of the sitcom Friends, and this provides an escape from the surreal destruction of the Democratic or Democratic Party order. However, perhaps this apocalypse isn't as dramatic as all that. Perhaps all that's really going on is a political realignment within the parties and a major cultural change in both the electorate and the educated elites who rule. According to Jack Ross, the author of The Socialist Party of America, A Complete History, this is exactly what is happening. Ross isn't worried about losing his Wi-Fi connection or his teeth falling out, but rather he wonders if this might be the year when we Americans finally bury what Gennar Mardell called the American Creed. Mardell, a Swedish economist, published An American Dilemma, The Negro Problem in Modern Democracy in 1944. The book described the myriad of obstacles to full civic participation that black people were facing in the United States. In it, Mardell argued that it was only through a full commitment to the American Creed that these obstacles could be removed. Ross argues that 2024 will not be defined by a democratic crisis, not exclusively. What's really at risk is the American creed, and losing that might be worse than any temporary crisis in democracy. Certain meritocratic values 
that then became wound up with bound up with identity politics, meritocracy on the basis of race, gender, what have you, gradually, mind you, gradually, um, over the course of decades, came to overshadow and ultimately displace the American creed, core values of liberalism, derived from the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. To bring it back to Kevin Phillips and political realignment, basically since in this century, since 2000, there have been two central stories. One was the collapse of the conservative movement and and ultimately displacement by Trump. And the other was um, the one constant in the party system over two centuries of repeated realignments, which is the class character of the Democratic Party, began to change in a meaningful way for the first time uh, after 2000. Those two central stories of the 21st century are my starting point for understanding the larger phenomenon of the death of American exceptionalism. The concept of democracy is pre-modern and nearly universally embraced, whereas the American creed is historical and often conflated into or confused for another notion, namely the idea of American exceptionalism. Even as Joe Biden and other Democrats warn against various threats to democracy, they are also not so secretly pining for the destruction of the American creed and the maintenance of American exceptionalism without the creed and supported by power alone. What is this American creed? It's a set of core beliefs that all Americans were thought to hold when Mardell wrote his book, An American Dilemma, in 1944. By 1976, this creed was what the Department of Defense described as the American national character, a character that the DOD lamented as myopic. It was impeding the proper conceptualization of the psychological factor in national security planning and preventing domestic psychological operations from receiving funding from Congress. The creed is simple. America is a land where individuals and individualism are prioritized, a land where everyone has equal opportunity to succeed, and where everyone's civil liberties are protected by the Bill of Rights. According to the American Creed, all people, whether rich or poor, male or female, black or white, can thrive as they compete. American exceptionalism, on the other hand, is the idea that due to its embrace of this American creed, the United States has a special role to play on the world stage. American exceptionalism is something akin to white man's burden, only according to Ross, it's not racialized, but rather was the inheritance of a new type of humanity that emerged out of Western expansion. The immigrant melting pot and the creed or the value system derived from the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. Americans are white or black, they aren't tied to a geographical location or any tradition, but rather, they are thought to be free. According to the quasi-doctrine of American exceptionalism, the values in the American creed deserve to be universalized. Socialists in the second half of the 20th century 
have been very critical of American exceptionalism, seeing it as a cover story for American imperialism. But in his upcoming book for Sublation, Jack Ross describes this moment as defined by the strange death of American exceptionalism and the abandonment of the American creed as a time for mourning and perhaps even combat. Hello, Sublation Media viewers. It's me again, Douglas Lane, and this is a video about the strange death of American exceptionalism and the ongoing realignment in American politics. We'll ask viewers to reconsider the meaning of the word communism. Ross, a heterodox but still Marxist socialist, is asking the left and the right both to reconsider Cold War liberalism and perhaps find the rational kernel in, wait for it, McCarthyism. This video will feature excerpts from an interview with Jack. The interview will be available in full for patrons. In order to understand why Ross thinks there's a rational kernel to be found in the old McCarthyism, we should consider just what the word communism has come to mean. In 2021, Judith Butler, Cornell West, and Glenn Greenwald debated the topic of identity politics and culture wars as a part of the Holberg Debate Series, a project attached to the Holberg Prize out of Norway. The three Americans discussed many topics, amongst them the then-continuing COVID lockdowns and the question of civil liberties during a state of exception, when the norms and values of liberal society had been overturned. Butler, in her usual jargon-laden and deadening way, advocated for the lockdowns and for making the state of exception permanent given the ongoing threat of disaster from climate change. She made this call for maintaining authoritarian state control in response to Cornell West's mention of John Stuart Mill and his harm principle. The mere mention of the 19th century champion of free speech and the Enlightenment compelled Butler to state outright what the political aims of progressive post-structuralism really are. It was a moment of clarity, despite her reliance on placating and specious buzzwords. Without constraint. Yeah. There's no freedom without constraint. I understand yes, that. Yes, I well, yes, it's, a yes, one, yes, it's one yes. thing for me to say I must constrain myself in order not to do harm, and then I am still here in the position of the individual calculating what's harm, what's not, and he taught us how to calculate. Right. Mm -hmm. right. uh, but right. there might be an ethics that's beyond calculation. In other words, I'm thinking about my life, which means others are thinking about it in the same way, right. and we are linked in this living world in this, on this planet, right. right? Which is why the interdependency that we need to understand to fight COVID is also the interdependency we need to understand to fight climate destruction. I agree. And so agree. And we need a, I, I would call it a communist ontology, well, quite it's, frankly. It's a solidarity well, it's, that's, that's thicker no, than I any would, I, I think we need a radical social ontology. We need to rethink selfhood, its boundaries, its openings, to have a, a completely different ethics and, 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 and a politics of care. Um, so I'm I'm pushing against the personal liberty folk right now. Yeah, no, Sorry, I, I know I know that's extreme. As Sublation Media, Ashley Frawley and I have been railing against the safetyism that has been embraced by the left for months, and this moment with Butler demonstrates why we have rejected it. The assumption here is that there is or could be a bureaucratic power that could enforce a spiritual order wherein no discomfort or sickness would be allowed to emerge. The assumption here is that the capitalist state can be transformed into a realm without contradiction and without corruption. That we could create a womb for humanity, wherein the boundaries between the state and the citizens 
along with the boundaries between the citizens themselves, are erased. The elimination of the ego, of the self, of the free individual, was her explicit aim. She used the term communist, but should have said communal or community instead. A communist society would be one wherein civil society, the realm where free and independent individuals work and cooperate, had overcome the contradictions inherent to the current form of work and thereby overcome the class system. It is not a world wherein individuality and independent thinking and action are suppressed, but one wherein the individual and society both are liberated and emancipated. However, objecting to Butler on the level of the definition of terms or even on the level of philosophy is fairly useless. In reality, her career is not about philosophy or education, but about propaganda and power. The way to combat Butler is not on the level of ideas alone, but also on the level of politics. She is a tool and mouthpiece for the capitalist Democratic Party, and as such, no amount of reasoned debate will shift her thinking, nor will it overcome the political motivations for members of her party to believe and follow her. In fact, the way to combat Judith Butler is not through mere intellectual debate alone, although that is always a useful endeavor, but also through political organizing and struggle. After all, as a propagandist for the progressive wing of capitalism, Butler only echoes and justifies what has already happened. She is not leading anything or anyone anywhere. What we should note is that her party and the progressives' power are looking shaky. 2024 might be the year it all tips over and the political landscape gets rearranged. Just how desperate, authoritarian, and violent Judith Butler's faction will behave is an unknown but I suspect they'll go as far as they are allowed to go in order to maintain power. Worse, the opponents of the progressives, the populists, and conservatives have demonstrated that they, too, ultimately want to impose her communist ontology on the population. Today, communism is nothing more than an attempt to erase the American creed from the culture. To understand the extent of this communist success, we should review the reporting that's been done based on corporate leaks in 2023. The Twitter files. Yes, the Twitter files again. These and other leaks revealed the enmeshment and cooperation between the media, digital and traditional, and the Department of Homeland Security. The Department of Homeland Security has declared that the thoughts and ideas expressed through the nation's communications infrastructure must be protected, regulated, and controlled. Our thoughts are considered to be what they call cognitive infrastructure. And as such, the ideas in our heads, in our newspapers, and on our screens belong to and must be controlled by the public through the state. The journalist Michael Schellenberger has called the institutions that are making the effort to regulate our ideas and thoughts the woke censorship industrial complex. The inclusion of the term woke is, of course, controversial. Its inclusion marks those who would protest the efforts to censor and control the internet, amongst other avenues of expression, as right-wing. But Jack Ross would have us understand that the use of the term is, despite its connotations, appropriate. What is the origin of wokeness, however you want to put it? If, if you'll allow a certain indulgence on my part, because and mm. I guess because it's the holidays I've been watching a lot of uh, insufferable uh, pop culture YouTubers or whatever, but uh, a pop culture window into this that might make this easier to understand. 
mm-hmm. um, about wokeness in Hollywood or specifically Disney or Star Wars. Kathleen Kennedy never intended to go beyond uh, just whatever whatever very dated pre-Trump girl boss feminist whatever and I I think that's worth mentioning in this discussion because I think that probably was very much an appendage of uh, of Hillary just having totalizing tentacles everywhere. But that was that created the opening for much more insane people to 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 create uh, the panderverse to use the South Park phrase. Uh, or, um, but I mean, you get why I bring that up and why that should be seen in the same, in in the same, and certainly when it comes to Hollywood and how much how tied in they were to uh, Hillary operations and what late night became and all the rest. I mean, is that helpful using that? Yeah, although you know that can, that's as help that's helpful and also like kind of confusing at the same time because. If I try to understand how it is that uh, Donald Trump uh, actually, you know, through real life relationships between real people, uh, influence the direction and dynamic of the Star Wars, uh, Disney, the Disney version of Star Wars, um, I feel like I, I will end up uh, with a big chart on my wall and strings of you know yarn connecting this person and that person turning into uh, you know oh a, for a, sure a but that's but that's also a great but it's also a great example if we're just talking about uh, the world of the very online I mean I mean mm-hmm. what, well what I remember what I remember most distinctly like in 2014 that period was Amy Schumer was the first person that uh, you were in a very dictatorial fashion told by people in the media, this is the biggest ground. I, I just remember it was just the way it was stated that you have, you you have, have to, like to admire this very groundbreaking person. And I, I think the, the kind of people who ran the agencies in Hollywood, yes, they intended to create these tempests. Okay, so yes, no, the way to think about it in a not so string boardy way that's much more straightforward is uh, they intended these pop culture episodes to happen the way they Black Lives Matter to happen. They thought they could keep it contained to just getting Hillary elected or creating the terms that are best to, I mean, but I don't want to talk about Gamergate or anything like that. But, 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 but I mean, that's I mean, the kind of thing the media wants talk. I mean, we're getting into very weird territory for all. No, no, it's fine. Yeah, I like it though. For for Jack, let's. Here's yeah, what I'm gonna... no, no, well, okay, but no, this could get directly to if you wanted what is the origin of wokeness or whatever yeah yeah do that it really was a perfect storm that occurred around 2013 2014 you had what the forces that collided were um the collapse of 
the collapse of hope in the in or disappointment in the Obama administration, disappointment with Obama and the arrival of the first uh, generation of elite uh, college graduates in media and other institutions who were entirely formed by the post-New Left, March for the Institutions. Well, and both of those with the economic uh, situation, which was which aftermath of the financial collapse and uh, mm -hmm. the ascent of Silicon Valley. And that is the third thing, because I was going to say, that was the perfect storm that I think the Hillary campaign channeled, but they didn't understand what they were getting around. And I think the key factor is there was not enough for how the internet had changed everything, that just how that, I mean, an average, let's say an average boomer looked at something like Gamergate and they thought, oh, this is just something on a message board. We've created moral panics around things on message boards before and they didn't, they didn't really about, I mean, how much did any of us know about how much uh, uh, social media was doing to our psychology or To justify his use of the word woke, Ross cites the words of the Socialist Party leader Norman Thomas, who in 1954 published his book, The Test of Freedom. In that book, Thomas wrote, we cannot defend liberty by denying the danger of the organized communist conspiracy, even if at the moment it is weak within the United States. It was a serious liberal error, contributing to the rise of McCarthyism, that so many liberals so long minimize the communist evil. Communism is a monstrous threat to any valid theory or practice of freedom and fellowship among men. In this double struggle, there are unfortunately some avowed liberals who aid both McCarthyism and communism by persistently minimizing the danger of communism in America and by assuming that because the complex of ideas and actions which we sometimes call McCarthyism is bad on the whole, therefore none of its elements is necessary or even defensible. And because the McCarthy's big and little have given the wrong answer to communism, there is no need for any answer except a touching faith that truth is mighty and must prevail. Now, replace McCarthy with Trump and communism with intersectionality or woke or whatever, and that that that's it right there. Jack Ross believes that what is sometimes called intersectionality or the PMC successor ideology is no passing fad, but a new religious sensibility that has gripped the nation. One that not only threatens, but aims to replace the American creed. And we should pause here to note that Ross, while being a socialist in a distinctly American style, offers an explanation for that American creed that is distinctly different from the usual materialist economic stories we try to tell ourselves. For Jack, 
America has always been a melting pot of religious attitudes, intersectional in the sense that its creed and character were shaped by the intermingling of ethno-religious ideas and ideologies. In his book, The Strange Death of American Exceptionalism, Ross explains how while most conservatives and liberals today share the belief that America is a nation founded as a proposition, there is an argument that it was founded upon a shared ancestry or shared cultures. Rather than being founded on a mere idea, Ross suggests that America emerged out of the historically determined ways of life of various ethnic groups and therefore could never simply be imposed on other peoples through military aggression. Ross writes, the core meta-narrative that spans Kevin Phillips' The Cousins' Wars and the emerging Republican majority provides the outline of a grand counter-narrative of American history, of how American civilization was forged in a highly distinct ethno-religious context from which it organically developed the processes and capacities to expand and to assimilate newcomers, what could be called an ethnic interpretation of American history. For Ross, this ethno-cultural approach to understanding America explains its political history as the way various ethnic and religious groups formed coalitions within the two major parties. Tackling the current realignment taking place, Ross points to how these ethnic religious groups are shifting their allegiances, yes, but also how the boundaries and self-identity of these groups are changing. In this way, Ross is a materialist as he traces the history of the U.S. on an ethnic religious basis and notes how the character and definition of the various cultures in the U.S. changed as the economic conditions and contradictions, such as the problem of gentrification, divided and changed various ethno-religious communities. His explanation of the rise of intersectionality is particularly compelling and counterintuitive precisely because Ross leans on an ethno-cultural history of American politics. Intersectionality far from being an expression of black culture as historically understood, is instead the product of the white mainstream culture's desecularization coming for blacks. If it had said, we're more, uh, television is more popular than Jesus, I might have got away with it. <laughs> its rise coincides with both the decline in the power of the black churches and the dominance of the historically transformed puritism that can be traced back to lily-white New England. Ross writes that the Black Lives Matter phenomenon, overwhelmingly white when it resurfaced in the May-June days of 2020, may ultimately be remembered as little more than the last collective gasp of Black America. But the passing of Black America need not be mourned in the same way that the destruction of the American creed demands. Ross writes, The impotence of the American Jewish establishment in the face of intermarriage is a warning to all who feel certain of the immutability of non-white identity as currently understood, or the power of the institutions sustaining it. In the end, to borrow a phrase from the gay rights movement, love wins. He says, don't be afraid. But even if a divide between whites and blacks will one day no longer be reflected in party politics, or even in our private self-conception, other divisions and social ills remain and could be used by those who oppose the American creed in favor of the rule of the new intersectionality. The class that will take advantage and enforce wokeness is best understood as the inheritors of the New England Puritans' ideological project. It is what is left of the old progressives after the 20th century and the WASP establishment 
secularized society, starting in the 1920s with the Scopes Monkey Trial. The secularization of schools was the largest factor in the declining religiosity that continues up to today. All the various ethno-religious tribes fell in line. First the Quakers, then the Wasps, then the Jews. This is what created the space for the secular religious notion of intersectionality. It is what enabled the intersectional successor ideology to emerge. And furthermore, you can all go fuck yourselves. Ross writes, meanwhile, as the Protestant mainline passed unmistakably into senescence in the 1960s, its leading theologians embraced the zeitgeist. The essential artifact of this period was Time Magazine's 1966 cover, Is God Dead? that featured a spectrum of Protestant theologians invariably arguing for reducing Christianity to an ever more explicitly secular social gospel mission. This new dispensation still had a serious commitment to social justice in the wake of the civil rights movement, but over time, it came to mean little more in practice than the headlong embrace of female ordination, the sexual revolution, mindless ecumenicalism, and ultimately white racial self-abasement. Not only is wokeness a kind of creedal passion that can be traced back to New England, but it has a material foundation and political efficacy within and for what Ross describes as the new class, a term that he borrows from Irving Kristol, the godfather of neoconservatism. Rather than being professional managers of capital, the new class is composed of scientists, teachers, educational administrators, journalists, media workers, psychologists, social workers, lawyers, doctors, city planners, foundation employees, and government bureaucrats. Still, it's worth noting that Crystal's concept of the new class faced criticism from others on the right. James Burnham claimed the idea that there was a new class of media types and knowledge workers amounted to thin gruel. He wrote, intellectuals, verbalists, media types are conspicuous actors these days, certainly. They make a lot of noise, get a lot of attention, and some of them make a lot of money. But after all, they are a harem-scarum crowd and deflate even more quickly than they puff up. On TV, they can out-talk any of the managers of ITT, GM, or IBM, or the administration managers of the great government bureaus and agencies. But honestly, you're not going to take that as a power test. Who hires and fires whom? However, if one embraces a revisionism of Marx that the French theorist Guy Debord had devised a decade before Crystal wrote of the new class, namely, if we allow ourselves to consider the possibility that capitalism had reached a spectacular level where all that was directly lived had retreated into an image of itself, then this new class might be a justified concept. In 1988, Debord explained how it was that the new class, if it exists at all, did not retain its anarchist character or its commitment to free speech. How it is that, as Daniel McCarthy put it in The American Conservative, the new class as a whole is less like Carl Oglesby, the 1960s radical and one-time president of the Students for a Democratic Society, than like Hillary Clinton. DeBoard wrote, It is in these conditions that a parodic end of the division of labor suddenly appears with carnivalesque gaiety, all the more welcome because it coincides with the generalized disappearance of all true competence. A financier 
can be a singer. A lawyer, a police spy. A baker can parade his literary tastes. An actor can be president. A chef can philosophize on the movements of baking as if they were landmarks in universal history. Each can join the spectacle in order publicly to adopt or sometimes secretly practice an entirely different activity from whatever specialty first made their name. In the same comments on the Society of the Spectacle, Debord explained what he called the confusionist concept of disinformation. Disinformation, he said, is a term deployed against all critique of the spectacle or of the established bureaucratic order run by this new class of mediatic spies and propagandists. We might say that intersectionality or wokeness is both a religion and a weapon for the new media types who run society from within this bureaucracy. The enemies of this new class aren't just socialists, but anyone who would challenge the bureaucratic state's authority, let alone organize against it. And this is where we find the rational kernel within Ross's claim that Joe McCarthy was a lesser evil. If we understand communism to be a kind of state-mandated way of being, or as Judith Butler would put it, an ontology, we can see that there really has been a quasi-communist infiltration in America. And as socialists, we are obligated to oppose it.